Take your copy of God's Word, if you will, and join me in the book of Joel and permission granted to open up the front cover of your book to the table of contents and say, where in the world is this tiny book of Joel? Find the page number in your copy and uh, get there. This is not a book we often turn to and we kind of flip through it when we're, we find ourselves in Psalms and Proverbs and to the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, jump through Daniel, skip over Hosea and find your way to Joel. Trust I'm giving you a second to get there. And once you do, once you join me in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we join King David in his prayer to you. We say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me, lead us, Lord, in the way everlasting. Lord, thank You for this Word. Help me to preach it with clarity and the power of Your Spirit. And help us all to be receptive to Your Word being implanted in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Trusting you have found Joel chapter 1, let me just begin this morning by reading uh, a good majority of that chapter, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. This is the word of the Lord for us, his people. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine. For it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Verse 11. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Well, O ministers of the altar, go in. Pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Verse 14. Consecrate a fast. 
Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. This is God's Word, and may He richly add to the reading of it. Let me start out this morning and this series, in fact, which will probably take four weeks to walk through this three-chapter book. But I'd like to start it out by asking just two questions. Maybe they're questions on your mind, so I'll kind of anticipate that and answer it likewise. First question, why in the world are we studying an Old Testament minor prophet? Well, thank you for asking, and let me take a moment to answer. And although I could offer a lot of answers, let me just kind of throw out a few, maybe four. First one is this. The Word, the Word that completes us and equips us is not limited to the New Testament. You'll be reminded from times we've drawn your attention back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which undergirds our conviction of the inspiration of the Scriptures by way of the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul told his young protege, Timothy. He said, all Scripture... All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This word, encompassing 66 books from start to finish, is one word about our God. And it completes and equips us. We do not want to limit our teaching of the Scriptures to just the New Testament. And as a result of that, I mean, we, we kind of glean that from Paul's lead, right? I mean, Paul was careful to declare the full counsel, the whole counsel of God's Word. Listen to these words that he shared with the elders of the church in Ephesus. On Paul's way back to Jerusalem, he gathers the elders of that church together en route to where he was heading. And he gave them these, this final charge. Among other things he shared, he shared this, these words. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 26 and 28. He said, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. In other words, this is our final meeting, right? Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Why can he say that? Well, he says he's innocent of the blood of all because... I did not shrink from declaring to you the full and whole counsel of God. And then he gives them this charge. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His blood. And we've celebrated how the church was created as a result of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on behalf of all who will believe in, by faith in Him. We as your elders feel very strongly that the preaching and the teaching of this church and us needs to be us feasting on all of the Scriptures, much like Paul um, exemplified there. The first words of the book of Joel give credence to what we're talking about, where he begins out his prophetic book with these words, the word of the Lord that came to Joel. What does this indicate? This indicates that this powerful 
three-chapter book, this prophetic uttering of Joel was not his own, but it was actually the very words of God that he was intended and supposed to and charged to share. A third reason um, that I will kind of throw our way, and kind of it, it, it actually builds upon what we've been talking about is this, as the New Testament affirms this, that the Word of God is living and active. Be reminded this morning as we jump into this Old Testament prophetic book that every word on every page, although originally intended for a certain group of people in a certain era, a certain time period, by God's grace and the empowering, powerful movement of the Holy Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit, it is equally applicable and equally relevant to peoples that are scattered all throughout, not just lands, but generations as a result of the timeless nature of God. Third reason. Third reason. See this third reason. So to that end, Old Testament prophetic books, and the reason we're teaching, leading us through this minor prophet of Joel, they have an ability by God's grace to open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to the peculiar relevance that they had on their society and continue to have on our society today. So the prophets would painstakingly address things like sin, coming judgment, repentance, subsequent restoration available for those who would repent, And it would address covenant faithfulness. And we see such a peculiar relevance from that message then to the message we need to continue to hear today. Final reason that I'm walking us through one of these minor prophets, Joel in particular, is this. I long for you to see Jesus on every page of Scripture. I long for you to hear the heavy nature of this proclamation from the minor prophet, from God Himself through Joel, and see not just the wrathful response to sin, but to see Jesus who absorbed the wrath of that judgment on sin by God Himself. I want you to see that. You will not see His name, but you will see Him indelibly written on each page of this book, as you will throughout the whole of the Scriptures. Well, that's why we're looking at a minor prophet in general. Let me just kind of add to that this thing. Why study Joel in particular? Did we just kind of throw the 12 of the minor prophets on the wall, throw a dart and let it land on one? Well, well no. We ask the, asking the Lord, Lord, what would you have us preach next? We've just walked through this New Testament book and now what would you have us fill in the gap there with and go to next? And we... Um, are in Joel for this reason. Number one, Joel is three chapters. In the Hebrew Bible, actually, it's four, but not an express expert in reading from the Hebrew right to left. However, within these three chapters, the full orb of the gospel is illustrated. And I want you to walk away with that. Second thing, 
while you and I walk through this book of Joel, and we hear God's call through him, which is this. Repent or face the coming judgment. I'm hopeful that we will see in our own day how our day is also marked with a spiritual complacency, blindness to our own sin, and oblivious to the effect that sin has on our lives, much like the people in Joel's day were. Third and final reason, then I'm off on this, off of this. By observing Joel's primary theme throughout this book, and it'll come up multiple times, which is the day of the Lord. It is my hope that we will leave our study with a renewed eschatological focus. Let me define what I mean. Eschatology is a big word that simply means the study of the end. And in light of a day that is coming, It is my prayer that we would live our days today in light of the hope that we have in Christ in spite of the day that lies ahead. That's why we're studying this. Let me offer you just a few points of context, some historical background, and I'd like to do so by touching briefly on the author, the dating of the book, when was it written, and then major themes throughout the book before we jump into it. First thing, author. We know less about the author of the book of Joel than any other prophet in the Bible. He offers us no background other than his name and his dad's name that give us a clue to who wrote it. His name does mean Jehovah is God. And his father's name is Bethuel, um, but the, the meaning of a name that I point out to you is Joel which is Jehovah is God. And basically, that's all we know about the author. That's all we know about his name. Similarly, there's confusion, not confusion, but there's an absence of clarity to when the book was written. And I am convinced that that is, obviously everything in the Scriptures intentional, but I think it is intentional to shed light on the applicability of this book throughout generations. Let's talk about dating for a moment. The dating of when Joel was written in this book is a mystery. There's no indication. There's no, there's no allusion to kings that might have been present at that time. There's no specifics within the book that give us clues as to when it was written. Some people place the dating of this book well before the exile took place. Some put it at the end, and some people right in the middle of it. And I'm okay with the fact that we do not have clarity on that answer. The problem is that Joel doesn't offer us any clues. And I believe there are no clues offered because the prophecy that he spoke then by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit is as relevant today as it was then. Now, I'll say this again, which I said in the uh, Sunday school class that I taught on some of the minor prophets a few weeks ago. Although considered to be one of the minor prophets... There are 12 minor prophets, and uh, the Hebrew book would have packaged those or grouped those in what they would refer to as the group of 12, right? And although it is one of the minor prophets, there is nothing minor about this prophet. There is nothing minor about his message. The term minor simply comes 
as a result of the length of the book. There are three chapters in it, and thus the uh, reference to it being a minor prophet, but it's not because of its message. Before I talk to you about themes, let me make one more sentence, and it's this. May we all take heed to the message of Joel. Themes of the book. We'll see the sovereignty of God on full display. God is in total control of all things, including bringing about a catastrophic plague of locusts for His glory and the good of the people that will see that and have lessons of spirituality drawn from that. We'll see the theme, the day of the Lord. And just like in the book of Hosea, Hosea used marriage as a symbol of something greater. Joel is going to point to a catastrophic locust invasion. And God's going to take credit for it. He's going to even refer to those locusts as his nation, his army. And it's being brought about for a reason. But Joel is going to take that catastrophic event, that locust invasion, and use it as a foretaste of God's judgment if God's people do not repent. The day of the Lord, as we will see throughout this book, it'll take on various meanings. Some days it'll point us to that final day of the Lord. Some days it, sometimes in the book it will point us to something good that God brought about in the lives of His people. All of these things will be illusions of the day of the Lord that we will come to. But Joel's prophecy makes it very clear. This is a repeating little thing that I want you to hear. That if people do not surrender to God, then the day of the Lord, and I put that in quotes, will be a day of horror. However, if they return to the Lord, the day of the Lord will be a day of celebration and blessing. Future judgment should impact how we live today. Although rarely mentioned from today's modern pulpits, it is a theme that we ignore to our peril. And we cannot, nor will we, if we're going to take the whole counsel of God's Word into bear, into light. I share running stories a lot, and I, I can understand how, wow, we could use a different kind of story, but it's what I've done for so many recent years I was teaching one week in Abaco on the Grand, uh, Grand Island of Abaco in the Bahamas. My only assignment was in the evening, so I had my day to kind of explore, study, and prepare, but do some exploring, and occasionally, most often, they'd be on my feet. That island is long, and it would be pretty difficult to get lost. I was running down the main highway through the island of Abaco, and kind of oblivious to where I was going, my intent was to run a good ways this way, turn around, and come straight back. It's hard to mess that up. As I approached the airport, the little bitty one-strip airport, I noticed a roundabout that instead of having the word yield, it had the word on the sign, give way. And I thought, oh my goodness, what a beautiful spiritual picture of giving clarity to the word yield as I'm supposed to give way of my, my life and my, my whole being over to the Holy Spirit. And I'm kind of doing a preacher thing with nobody listening. It's just rattling in my head as the Lord's kind of reiterating that in my own life. 
and I enter into that traffic circle, say goodbye to the give way yield sign, and kind of make my way around the traffic circle, and was pointed in the same direction, I thought, going back. But hindsight proves that that was not just, they had multiple exits out of this thing. And although I thought I had gone in, around the circle, and come back, I'd actually gone in the circle, kind of got preoccupied, and before I got back to, let's say I entered it at 6 o'clock, I left it at 4 o'clock. And I go in, around, and out. And instead of coming this way, I start running that way in a direction that looked like the same seamless change highway that I had entered. I ran for a few miles in that beautiful island, and when I came across a hospital that I had never seen before, I realized I have made a drastic mistake, which can only be remedied by returning, going back, and correcting it that way, right? The reason I say this is this. Going in the wrong direction leads to the wrong, direct, leads to the wrong destination. You think, well, that's pretty brilliant, Chris. Thank you for that. We do not want to be guilty of teaching a sliver of the Gospel so that you are feasting on one aspect of, of what even popular culture would be drawn to and attractive to. Live your best life now. Come to Christ and live your best life now. And miss out on the fact that we serve a holy God And if we follow down the wrong path, it'll lead us to a wrong destination. And we want to open up the full and whole counsel of God's Word so that we are walking in lockstep by God's grace and according to His Spirit in everything that He wants us to see. God will not overlook sin. And we cannot take sin lightly. And we cannot ignore the discussions related to it and the call. Repent. Let's jump into this book. Um, which begins with the catastrophe. This book opens up with Joel's call to the old-timers of the land. And there had been just this devastating swarm of locusts, the likes of which had not been seen before and had not been lived through. We know it's drastic, Because Joel opens up his book by asking the elders, not elders of the church, but just the old-timers of the village, not village, but the land, listen, have you ever seen anything like this before? And he placed the onus of responsibility upon the old-timers, the elders, to make sure that this catastrophe and the spiritual lesson that it was representing was never forgotten throughout all the coming generations. Akin to what Moses did for the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said, hear this. Tell this to your children. Tell it to their children. Have their children's children tell it to their children. Don't let it be forgotten. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Similarly, Joel is saying with this rhetorical question, don't let this be forgotten. Live in light of the lesson of the locust. For when the day the locust came to dinner. Notice what he says in verses 2 and 3. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your children? 
Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Listen, I know it pales in comparison, but I, I used to get a kick out of when I was working with the mission agency at Score International, we had some young adults working with us, none of which were from Ch- the Chattanooga area, North Georgia area. And anytime there would be a flake of snow fall to the ground or the forecast of a flake of snow and everything would close down, the old timers in the office, I being part of them, would hearken them back to that spring of 1993. Did anything happen in the greater Chattanooga area in the spring of 1993? Of course it did. We got waylaid by 24 inches of snow in just a matter of no time. And I felt it incumbent upon all of us old-timers to remind the young whippersnappers there, there was once a day in our great city and great area where the storm of snow sucked us in. And they would always, as a result of our reminding them constantly, beat us to the point beat us to the punch. When a snowflake would fall, they would say, we get it, we get it. Blizzard 93, it was bad, it was a lot. And all those, though, although those that ex- experience that snow will never forget it, and will probably always bring it up to the next generation when there's a dusting of snow, there's no comparing the two. The, catastroph- the catastrophic event in Joel and the snow of <laughs> blizzard of 93. And Joel didn't waste a whole lot of ink explaining the plague of locust. Because apparently, no time has passed since it happened. Everyone hearing his message, everyone hearing the charge he's making to the elders, had and frankly were still living through the aftermath. But notice what he says in verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. It's said that one locust laying eggs in June will have approximately 18 million descendants by the time of early fall. I don't know if you're keeping count, but that's a lot. In the 1890s, in Algeria, a land that had not been, nor is to this day, immune from locust swarms, they experienced a plague of locusts, a swarm of locusts that was so bad and so devastating that it was reported to have killed over 200,000 human lives. Our own country was not immune to such difficult times, right? When an estimated 3.5 trillion locusts devastated the farmlands of Nebraska in 1875 with a swarm that was estimated to be 1,800 miles long and 100 miles wide, one American pioneer gave this report. And let me read you what they experienced. The sound that the locust made was compared to the roaring of a huge waterfall. Not only were crops devoured in minutes, but so too was the wool from the bodies of live sheep, and even, according to some reports, the clothes off of people's backs. 
Trains couldn't move along the tracks because the insects made the rails too slippery. The locust, or hoppers as they would often be called, remained for a few days to a week, and then they left as they had come on the wind. And you'll hear that language throughout Joel. When we read through these verses that I've just read to you, these first 14 verses of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, we see hints of the devastation that this locust plague in Joel's day had brought. Right. So look at verse 6 and 7. For a nation has come up against my land. There's some debate thinking that these are, these are actually armies of people who have come up against his land. But I wholeheartedly believe that given the context of chapter 1 and 2, that what's being referenced here is just the, the locusts themselves. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth. Locusts don't have teeth, by the way. He's just drawing this huge picture of these were incredibly devastating. And it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It's stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. If awesome can be used for a descriptor for something that's not just good, but something like this, it would be most fitting. Verse 9, first part of it. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. There's nothing left. Verse 10. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Verses 11 and 12. Second part of 11. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All of the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. Don't miss the awesome, devastating picture that Joel is painting about the, the day that the locusts came for dinner. And don't miss the connection that he makes with something else. It's not hard to imagine the catastrophe that Judah experienced, but it is important that we connect the dots with the bigger picture of God's intention by bringing it about. As horrific and as devastating as the plague of locusts were, leaving no person unimpacted as we're about to see, Joel's message assured the people that the plague was from God and that it pales in comparison to the judgment that awaits people that ignore His call to repent of their sin. Look at verse 15. He says, Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. However, Joel's message was not all gloom and judgment, but it contained, as the gospel does, hope by way of repentance, which he called them to through a series of, and you, these are, this is noteworthy as we get to him, through a series of four imperatives. Each of the imperatives is directed to a different people group, all of which have drifted into placing their hope in sources other than God. Something that you would attest that we are all prone and susceptible to doing. Let's look at these four imperatives in my notes. I've labeled them callings. The first one comes out of verse 5. He says this, Awake. 
Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. This is not a case study on not drinking wine. You can make a case for that however you wanted to, but you would be a little less informed to do so from this point. He's making a bigger point and issue with his invitation for uh, the drunkards to awake. Awaken. Second thing, this second command you see in verse 8. Notice this language. Lament. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Third one you see in verse 11. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers. And finally, number four. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail. These are, these are direct calls to repent. Put on sackcloth. Lament. Wail. And look who he's addressing. O ministers of my God. Let me briefly talk about all four of these to include the people group that is being addressed. Number one. Joel's first imperative is to the drunkard. One we have to assume has grown accustomed to and is practicing numbing himself from all senses of reality and responsibility. His plan for today's problem is escape. But even his crutch of wine, the sweet wine that's described there, has been done away with by the locust. The vines have all been destroyed. And he's being called, wake up, see the futility that escape has offered you as an empty promise. And weep and wail over your willingness to find your satisfaction at the bottom of a wineskin. I don't need to elaborate a whole lot that wine is one thing that we use as a form of escape. But it could be replaced with a number of things. Maybe it's just pleasures in general. Maybe it's things that have drawn your attention and affections that you have gone to to escape the realities of life, the troubles in your family, the difficulties at work, the emptiness that you feel. Awake. Weep. Wail. The second thing that we see here is an imperative that is really a bitter picture. I said picture, and I meant to say picture. <laughs> Notice what he says. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth. How strange is this? The irony is that brides are pictures of joy. And in our day, I can't confirm this about their day, they're robed in white. Certainly not in sackcloth. But this virgin, and I put that in quotes for you, this bride has had tragedy strike her at the point of her identity. Had she placed her hope and security in the new name she was about to adopt? Had she placed her hope and security in the care that she would receive, the provision that she would receive from her husband? Instead of meeting her groom at the altar, she now mourns his death before her wedding day has even arrived. That's why she's called... That's why she's... A bride and a virgin in, in both of these allusions here. Just like Jesus 
Jesus' mother Mary, when she is betrothed to Joseph, and before they had even come together, Joseph, when, she, when he finds out that she was with child, decided to put her away and divorce her privately. Why would someone engaged have the ability to divorce? Because they were committed legally and bound together, like this young virgin. She is bound and in waiting, looking for the day with her white gown, I'm assuming, I shouldn't assume, in her, in her celebratory clothing. But those have been replaced with sackcloth and ashes. And instead of meeting her groom at the altar, she mourns his death before her wedding day even arrived. And listen to this, Joel is calling all the people of the land, all of the people, not just young expectant brides, but all of the people of the land to mourn like this bride in sackcloth, not over the loss of a groom, but over their sin. And in their blindness, they didn't even realize they had a problem. But God, in His gracious kindness, brings about a plague of locusts that shakes them to the core and causes them to listen. Third imperative is to another group of people. And this one is to the laborers, the workers. Maybe these, these people found their security, their hope, their, their, based their hope of their future in the work of their hands. Notice what Joel says. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O you vine dressers. I'm struck with this command. Be ashamed. This external and subjective experience which ranges from disgrace to guilt that's brought about by sin. Be ashamed, he says. My mind goes back to Genesis chapter 2. In fact, the last verse of Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember what it says there? We've just, we've just met Adam and Eve and, and they're married and, and they're living life in the garden and enjoying time with God and the fellowship of Him and with each other. They've named all the animals. And then it says something strange to our ears or eyes, I should say. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked. But it goes on to say, and they were not ashamed. There was nothing among them that had tarnished or brought any darkness upon the light which defined their union in and under God. But then you turn the page and Genesis chapter 3 comes about. And they're tempted with a promise that could never pay its debt. But they reach after that lure. And sin enters into the picture. And all of a sudden, they want to live the rest of their life hiding covering themselves and living in the shadows. But God calls His people to live in the light. So His final imperative is addressed to the priest and the ministers of the altar so that none of the people of the land would be confused. Notice what we see here. It's in verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest, wail, O ministers of the altar. By the hand of God, the locusts have brought about a famine. It's crushed them. They've been left with no crops. They've been left with no prospects of, of food. They have no grocery store, Walmart, Kroger, or Publix to run to to replenish their stocks. They are in dire trouble. However, the real famine 
that the locusts have revealed is not their pantries, but it's spiritual. You'll see this in verse 16. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joel asked. Joy and gladness from the house of our God. Joel has set the table in this three chapter power packed prophecy, which is anything but a minor prophet, with a devastation that brings to light our hearts. And so many times, God is kind. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, and it is He that grants repentance to those who will humble themselves before Him. And He is kind to bring about things like, wow, devastating locusts to help us wake up, to live today in light of that day. But even before Joel begins to shed light or finishes shedding light on the whole of chapter 1 and the extent of God's wrath against sin, he gives a clue to some good news. And I'm going to tip my hand each week to the good news um, as we begin to land this plane from where we are. I want you to notice in verse 14 that God through Joel calls His people to do something. And He calls them to this. He says, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Later in the book, Joel's appeal for the people will be given on the basis of God's character. And we read in Exodus chapter 34 something that Joel now quotes in Joel chapter 2. He says, but God is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and He relents over disaster. Try telling that to a people, a bride who's lost her husband, a people who have no food, a ministry worker who has no things to make church happen, that hey, God is gracious and patient. And we won't get that until and or unless the Spirit of God shakes us and wakes us up to a bigger picture. That we're not here for our creature comforts but we're here to bring glory to Him as a result of His life in us. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, we'll encounter another verse that will offer us hope. We've grown accustomed to hearing this out of Romans chapter 10 and used as an evangelistic appeal. But in Joel, it's used in this way. And it shall come a path. It shall come a to pass to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God has brought the locusts to dinner. And He's brought them for a purpose, to awaken His people. Awaken His people to the death-giving sin that they've turned their attentions to. And I close this morning with some more questions as I began. What about you this morning? Do you find yourself identifying with any of the four peoples identified with each imperative? Have you drifted in your relationship with the Lord? Here's a poignant question from the text. Has joy and gladness been cut off from your life and you don't even know why? Could it be 
that like Joel's original audience, whatever century it was written, that they were blind to their darkness. They had grown accustomed to living in their sin. And they remained that way until by God's grace, the locust came for dinner. If so, if that, any part of that resembles life for you in the pew this morning or from in me behind this pulpit, ask God to allow this walk through this reading and opening words of a plague that we've read about from Joel. Ask God to allow that reading to have the same effect in your hearts today that it had in the people who responded then. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Stop yourself in the moment from thinking who really needs to hear this and ask God, what part of this do I need to hear? Run to God in Christ this morning. Why? Because now as you've heard three times this morning, He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and He is abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. And He did relent over disaster for His people. And centuries later, He would do the same by causing His disaster His judgment to fall fully on His Son Jesus so that people who trust in Him by faith can be shown grace and life everlasting in Christ. In your heart of hearts this morning as you're thinking, what in the world does Joel have to do with me? I appeal to you, believer, in this room, Pray the prayer of David that we opened up our service with from Psalm 139. And take a moment to ask the Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked, grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting in them by faith. Running to Christ, believe these words that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Both for the non-believer in this room who's never responded to Christ in the Gospel, and those of us who are believers, who by God's grace, the Holy Spirit is prompting elements of our heart in which we have drifted. Run to Christ. Repent. Trade your sackcloth for a white gown. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship You this morning because of Your steadfast love, Your gracious heart, Your kindness to lead us to repentance. Lord, for those who have, even believers in this room who are choosing the way of escape as opposed to walking by faith and trust in You, Jesus, through the circumstances of their life, clinging on to the promises of God, would You lead them to repentance for that sin? Or for those who are 
cognizant this morning of how they have placed their hope in their identity or their new name or the provision that they're receiving from some other source, would you show them the futility of a promise that cannot pay and find life in the One who has provided all by way of His Son? For those of us, Lord, in this room who are trusting the work of their hands as their final supreme source, would you lead them to wail and lament and run and trust in you? And Lord, if it's the state and condition of our hearts that joy is no longer to be seen, would you help us search our heart and to see what sin issue has caused a roadblock in our intimacy with you? And would you remove away the blinders and draw us into the light by your grace and your spirit in Jesus' name? Amen.